lesson for tonight. Now, we have been going through our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and in this, we talked about how Jesus is laying out his standard for the kind of people that end up in his kingdom. Matthew presents Jesus as the king, and the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus looking at Israel, all of these people who are expecting their Messiah and their king to come, and he's saying, these are the people that I let in. So there's a very important point that we're hitting tonight that has kind of like been the main point of the entire section that we've been reading, but it's a bit hard to like get through the individual pieces and always rope that in. So tonight we're kind of tying a bow on it, as it were. But last week we talked about honesty, and I said that the way that you talk is a massive aspect of your character because a lot of times things just slip out. It's difficult to control your speech, and so the things that are in your heart are going to slip out a lot more easily through your words than they would otherwise. But there's actually another situation where it can be really difficult to do the right thing. And those are situations where you are actually being provoked or when you hate someone. Situations where you are actively being provoked or you hate the person in question, where you have been genuinely wronged by them, those are situations where it can be extremely difficult to do the right thing. And so a large test of your character is not just, are you righteous when it's easy to slip up, but it's, are you righteous when it is actively difficult to do so? Like, even if you're, it's like difficult to control your speech sometimes, it's not like you couldn't just not talk and avoid saying the dumb thing. But when someone is actively trying to get a response out of you, when you're in a difficult situation, a lot of times the pressure causes those cracks to break open a little bit. So Jesus is talking about situations where it is actually difficult to be righteous and how you're supposed to respond in those situations. So I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start reading in verse 38. All right. It says, You have heard it said... An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So this is the first thing that Jesus talks about. He talks about essentially justice. And like everything else in this section, Jesus is addressing a way that an Old Testament passage or concept was being misused by the Pharisees. In this case, Jesus is using and referring to an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There are three places in the Old Testament law where eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth come out, and this is one of them. In Leviticus 24, 17 to 22, it says, Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native. I am the Lord your God. So this comes up in Leviticus. This also comes up in Exodus chapter 21, and it comes up again in Deuteronomy 19. And in each of those situations, it's dealing with a slightly different specific case, but it's this concept of proportionality and justice. 
where if someone insults you, that doesn't give you the right to beat them to a pulp. And if someone beats you up, that doesn't give you the right to kill them and their family. Like, have you guys ever seen those mafia movies where there's like those blood feuds where someone insults someone and then they kill their brother and then it's like, oh, you killed my brother? I'm going to kill seven of your cousins. And it's like, oh, you killed seven of my cousins? Well, I'm going to kill everyone. And it just escalates like that. <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. So we've all seen those kinds of things where especially in family feud kind of stuff, that stuff gets really crazy and really out of hand really quickly. The exact same thing was true in the ancient Near East when this was written where justice was not proportional. And so Jesus, or rather I should say God in the Old Testament is saying when you are doing justice, justice needs to be proportional. It is not acceptable for someone to insult someone else and then get their hand cut off for it. It's not acceptable for someone to steal someone else's animal and then get killed for it. Like you do need to do justice, but that justice needs to be in proportion to the crime, right? It's a pretty reasonable it's a pretty reasonable standard, right? And then he says at the end, the same rule for the sojourner and the native. You're not allowed to be like, oh, if you're an Israelite, then you get proportional justice. But if you're a non-Israelite, if you're one of those Moabites, then, then, then we're, we're going to go ham. You steal my animal, I'm killing you and your family. Like, no. God says that justice does not care about a person's race. Justice does not care about a person's class. Justin care, justice cares about what was done. And if you've ever heard the phrase like justice is blind, that's a biblical concept. And so this is specifically related to justice from the government. And the issue that Jesus is addressing is that people had taken this, this, this principle out of the courtroom and they had brought it into personal relationships where it's like, oh, you insult me, I'm going to insult you. Eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You, you take my animal, well, hey, man, I'll take yours. Tooth for a tooth, eye for an eye. If you've ever heard the saying, if it's an eye for an eye, we'll all go blind. Like, if you take this concept and you apply it outside of the courtroom, that's a problem. Because God's standard for an individual is not actually the same as God's standard for a government. And... Something that kind of exemplifies this is in Proverbs chapter 20. In the book of Proverbs, it's just a bunch of sayings of like, this is what righteousness is. These are things that you should live out. These are axiomatic things. And in chapter 20, verse 22, it's giving instructions to individuals. And it says, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. So he's essentially saying, don't take justice into your own hands. If you've been wronged, it's not your job to seek them out and force it to be made right. If you've been wronged, let God handle it. But then, four verses later, it drops this gem. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. I thought the king was supposed to wait for the Lord and let him repay. I thought the king isn't supposed to repay evil, but no, there's a different standard for a government and an individual. And Jesus is addressing the fact that the Pharisees had taken something that was something for justice in a courtroom and they were applying it to individuals. And what resulted was a lack of mercy because Christians show mercy. And that's the thing that we're learning here. Jesus is saying, hey, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn your cheek the other way and give him the other also. If someone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. 
And when we're looking at the situation, all of these are situations where the individual is rightly upset. If someone slaps you across the face, you've got every right to be upset about that. You just got slapped across the face. And Jesus is saying, even in that situation, it's not your job to take justice for yourself. It's your job to act in mercy. In the situation where he talks about if someone would take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. He's talking about being generous, not searching for your own well-being, but caring for the people around you, even while they are wronging you, still caring about them. He says this, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Back in those times, a Roman soldier could walk up to anyone on the street and say, hey, I want you to carry my shield for, for a mile. So they could actually just have people randomly walk a mile with them. Didn't matter what you were doing. Didn't matter if you were doing business. Didn't matter if you were hanging out with your family. Didn't matter if it was hot and you were tired. If a soldier comes up to you and says, carry my stuff, you carried his stuff for a mile. And Jesus is saying, oh yeah, those brutish, horrible pagans that have been occupying your land, who frequently mistreat you and who are enemies of God. Yeah, those ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, be generous to them. When they force you to go one mile with them and you are being genuinely wronged by the people occupying you, give them a second one, man. Be defined by generosity and mercy even when you are being wronged. And something that I do need to address. You know, we're saying that the king is defined by justice, but the private individual is defined by forgiveness and mercy. That God has a different, you know, pattern for each one. But one of the things that you might get out of this is that, oh, a Christian's not allowed to defend himself. If someone's attacking you, you just got to sit back, relax, and let them do what they're doing. You know, if someone's trying to kill you, someone's trying to beat you up, whatever it is, you're not allowed to defend yourself. You got to turn the other cheek. If they shank you in one lung, give them the other one too. So that's one of those things that we should probably address. In Luke chapter 22, verses 35 to 38, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he's sending them out to do missionary work, or rather he's talking to them about when he ascends and then they go out and do missionary work. He says, and he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And this is referring to earlier in Luke where Jesus sends out 70 disciples in pairs. He says, don't bring a money bag. Don't bring, um, I don't remember the full list. He said, don't bring stuff that you needed. Go out there and I'm just going to provide for you while you're out there. So he's referring to something earlier in Luke. And then they said, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So there's a lot of really cool stuff in that passage that I love it for other than what we're about to talk about, but we don't have time to go into it. So let me ask you this. What are swords for? Fighting. Fighting, more specifically? Killing. killing. Swords are for killing people. Even in the modern day, if you have a gun, a gun can be used for hunting, a gun can be used for warfare. Swords are basically only used for killing people. Like a knife is a tool, a sword is a weapon. So Jesus is saying, hey man, the world is going to be hostile to you. The world's going to be hostile to me. So if you don't have a means to defend yourself, get one. You know, Jesus isn't saying get a sword so you can just kind of like, you know, hold it in your arms when you go to bed and snuggle it like a stuffed animal. Like, no, 
He's saying, get a sword, and everyone knows what these are for. So the important thing also is to say, we got two swords, and he says, it's enough. So Jesus isn't saying, be a Christian militia and Christianize the nations by like taking over their governments. That's not what Jesus is saying. But also, the Bible is not against self-defense. So that's an important caveat. I'm also not saying that the Bible doesn't say that the Bible prohibits you from letting people kill you. There are plenty of people in history that have been martyred in all sorts of situations, like Jesus, for example. Stephen was also martyred. Martyred. All of the disciples except for John were martyred. You go through history, you go through missionaries, you go through all kinds of stuff in church tradition. There were plenty of people who were killed and actually allowed themselves to be killed for the sake of the gospel. So that's also not prohibited. But you have the ability to defend yourself and God's not outlawing that. But the issue is this. When you think about getting slapped across the face, what hurts more, your face or your pride? Your pride. Your pride. And so Jesus is saying, don't be motivated by your anger. Don't be motivated by your pride. Don't be motivated by getting the right way, by having justice in this situation. Be motivated by love for even the people who are provoking you. And that needs to define Christians. And that's an extremely difficult thing to do. That's something that is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. Like a lot of times when you're angry and you just kind of burst out and act out, that's the natural pattern. And Jesus says, yeah, even when you have a tendency to lose control, your job is actually to be perfect even in that situation. And then he goes on. Well, what's another situation where it's really difficult to do the right thing, to act righteously? It's not just when they're provoking you, but what about when it's a person that you just hate in general? Well, in verse 43... Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And the issue is, in this uh, situation, this is another one, where the Pharisees are twisting something that the Old Testament says. In Leviticus 19, 17 to 18, it says, this is one of my favorite chapters, Leviticus, by the way. We've talked about this a few times in youth group. But it says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur, in, uh, lest you incur because of him sin. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so God is saying, on my name, on my reputation, because you represent me and because I am here with you, you will love your neighbor. And the Pharisees took that and they said, well, you got to love your neighbor, which means I can hate my enemy, right? I can hate the person that isn't my neighbor. Like this section, if I had more time, I would teach it at the same time as the parable of the Good Samaritan, where someone says to Jesus, well, Jesus, uh, Jesus, um, who's my neighbor though? Because they think they found the loophole. And then Jesus says, the person that you despise more than anyone else, that's your neighbor. So your neighbor is everyone. Your job is to love everyone. And so the Pharisees had taken this and twisted it. And Jesus is saying, actually, you need to love your enemies. And why do you need to love your enemies? Because God loves his enemies. Like this is something that we don't necessarily think about a lot, but there's plenty of jacked up people in the world, man. And like, 
sun still rises. They still get to experience rain. They still see pretty things. They still eat good food. Some of them are rich. Like good things happen to bad people in this world. And that means that God is actively being kind and generous and merciful to bad people in this world. Just like he's kind and generous and good to, quote, good people in this world. And unlike, unlike any of that, and like, unlike any of the things that would be our natural tendency where we like to you know, section off the people that we care about and love, God loves everyone. God says, I do not delight in the death of the wicked, but I wish for all to come to repentance. He says that in Ezekiel. Uh, I think it's, I don't remember the actual reference for this one, but in one of, the, one of Peter's epistles, he says that the kindness of God is meant to bring you to repentance. And so God shows kindness to every single person on earth. And one of the reasons that's such a big deal is because would you like to know what every single one of us is? <clears throat> or at least what we were? More specifically, in the context of this passage, what were we? Enemies of God. Enemies of God. All of us were enemies of God. No one is born an ally of God. Everyone is born with a sinful nature where they naturally shake their fist at God. And in Romans 5, 8, it says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't look at us and say, ah, oh, that's a person that cares about me. That's a person that's going to seek after me. I'm, I, I got to send my son for him. No. Jesus looked at an entire world of people that if given the opportunity would have rejected him. Jesus looks at an entire world of people that in every situation would sin against him. Jesus looks at an entire world of people who were not worth saving. And then he says, yeah, I'll die for them. And so one of the things that we think about is that it's so easy to look at other people and be like, oh, all of them, those enemies of God, instead of being like, oh, wait, this enemy of God. Because I was not always a friend of God. What made me a friend of God was God. I didn't have the capability of making myself a friend of God. And you think about the price that God paid to do that. In Colossians, in Colossians 1, 21 and 22, it says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before him. Like one of the most massive expressions of God's love is that he looked at a bunch of enemies, us, and said, I'm going to die for you and I'm actually going to make you holy and blameless. I'm going to invite you into my kingdom and I'm going to turn you into someone who's able to come on in. I mean, look at John 3.16, one that we all know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not, have per should not perish but have eternal life. And the issue is when the Bible talks about the world, it's talking about people that are hostile to God. It's talking about a world system that is hostile to God. And God says, I'm going to die for that. And this is the other thing. God dies even for the people who would reject him. In 1 Timothy 4.10, it says, For this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And so the issue is God has actually provided salvation for every single person. Jesus died for millions of people that were going to reject him and go to hell anyway. And he did that because he loved them. God loves his enemies. And we are supposed to be like God and love our enemies. And so Jesus says, even in the most difficult situations, even when someone is provoking you, even when you hate someone and you feel justified in doing so, you need to be righteous. 
you need to love them. You need to care for them. You need to show them mercy. You need to pray for them. Pray for their blessing. Because that's what I did for you. And so there's one last thing that we have to cover. And that's, oh, Christians love enemies. In case you didn't guess. And then God's standard is perfection. And this is going to be a really short point. But look at verse 48. It says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, this section of the Sermon on the Mount started in verse 17, where Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And further down, he says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he finishes that section in verse 48 by saying, You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so I want to remind you who Jesus is talking to. Jesus is talking to a bunch of Jews who are lined up, and if you were to ask them who goes to God's kingdom, who does God let in, all of them would have said, Oh, the law followers, the people who are pure. The people who are righteous, I'm righteous, so I'm going in. I'm a Jew, so I'm going in. I'm a law follower, so I'm going in. And Jesus shows up, he looks at that crowd of people, and he says, you want to know who I let in? Humble people who understand that they have nothing to offer me. I let in the poor in spirit. But then he says, well, okay, let, let me. You think you're getting in by following the law. You think you're getting in by being righteous enough. Okay, well, let me show you that pathway. Uh, I did not come to get rid of the law. I came to fulfill it. So unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the people who are the most righteous people you have ever seen in your mind, you're not getting in. You think you're fine because you didn't murder anyone. Have you ever been angry? If you've ever insulted your brother, all that's left for you is damnation. You think that because you haven't committed adultery, you're fine. Have you ever looked at someone and lusted after them? Because if you have, all that's left for you is judgment. Have you ever lied in a way that your culture thought was acceptable? Have you ever broken an oath, crossed your fingers behind your back? Have you ever told your kid that the fairy tooth fairy was real? All that's left for you is judgment. Have you, have you ever been really angry when you were getting provoked and instead of being merciful and forgiving, you turned around and yelled at them? <laughs> You're not good enough. Have, have you ever looked at an enemy and done something other than love them and pray for them, you've broken the law. All that's left for you is hell. If you think you're getting in because you're good enough, you're jacked. And Jesus looks at a bunch of people and every single one of these specific topics, every time he says, you think that you're fine because of this, but this, they're supposed to be sinking further in their seats and thinking back to when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And they're supposed to be thinking, oh, I actually don't have anything to offer. <laughs> because Isaiah says that even our righteous works are like filthy rags to God. So when we're reading this section as Christians, we're supposed to look at this and we're supposed to love God. And because we love God, run after him. We understand that this is God's standard and we know that we can't live up to it. I can't be good enough. I can't live this out. But every time I fail, I'm going to see that. I'm going to look at God. I'm going to say, sorry. And then I'm going to get back up and try again. And then for a non-Christian, when they hear this passage, they're supposed to be thinking to themselves, oh, I need Jesus. And Jesus is like, yeah. Like the Sermon on the Mount, 
One of the main things is that the Sermon on the Mount is a gospel presentation. It's the law of, of Jesus's kingdom. It's the description of who goes in. And the Sermon on the Mount actually ends in an invitation where Jesus says, blessed is the man who hears these words and heeds them. Like, this is a gospel presentation. This is Jesus's gospel presentation. And one of the first things he starts with is, I save the humble. And if you think you're getting in because of works, you're not. So for us, let's follow God's laws because we love him. Let's run after God. And as we fail, because we will, repent and start again. And if you're not a Christian and you think that you're going to get in because you're good enough, uh, Jesus has some harsh words for you. But they're spoken in love with an invitation to be saved. None of us has anything to offer, but Jesus will save us anyways. All you got to do is turn and repent. So with that, let's bow our heads, pray it out. Lord, thank you that Jesus is a better evangelist than I am. Thank you that Jesus looks at a crowd of people and out of love for them, he knows exactly what they need to hear. Thank you that Jesus doesn't shrink back from saying potentially difficult things, but that Lord, he's open, he's honest. And Lord, that he does that with the intent to save people. Lord, thank you that you love our enemy, that you love your enemies because I was one of them and we were one of them. Thank you for saving us. I pray that you would help us to walk this walk, to follow your law as best as we can, not out of our own strength, but in the power of your spirit. And that every time we fail, that we would look to you and that Lord, we would boldly approach the throne of grace. Lord, save us, Lord, keep us, and Lord, bring us into heaven so that we can worship you forever. I pray these things in the name of our King Jesus Christ. Amen.